2: Kid, I gotta tell ya, you're just not right for Mad Magazine.
0: Why not? Your
2: artwork is bad, and your jokes aren't funny. On the plus side, where'd you get those shoes? Uh, oh, you like them? No, it was a joke. I thought it would be good if you knew at least one. Kid, look at me. Yes, sir? And second thought, uh, look somewhere else. Look at that avocado plant. Its name is Arthur. Now that's funny. Kid, it's 1964. People need to laugh. All you got is this picture of a fly.
0: That's not a fly. It's Ed Sullivan. He's trapped in a play by Sam Beckett.
2: Uh, I don't keep up with football.
0: Sam Beckett writes plays.
2: Yeah, like I said. Wait a minute, kid. Maybe Ed Sullivan is a fly. He introduces the Beatles. Get it? And Vermits Vermits and Topo Scratchio, the little Italian louse. Then Ed buzzes over to that set of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Hitchcock kills him with a roll up copy of Bad Magazine. Now that's funny, kid. I'll give you $25 for that idea.
0: That was your idea. Uh, then you give me $25. I got no money, Mr. Gaines.
2: And you're not funny. But neither are Wayne and Schuster, and they've been on Sullivan 58 times. It's some kind of Canadian experiment. Now there's an idea. Canada decides, instead of a space program, to develop one joke. Can you write that one, kid? I don't
0: think so, sir.
2: Nothing like confidence. I like you, kid. You remind me of how funny I am, because you're not. I'm gonna to keep you around. How does two bucks a week sound? Great, sir. Of course, you still owe me for that joke. I'll take it out of your pay. Well,
0: That's okay, because Mad Magazine is the cultural institution that shaped me. So I could be in a mental institution.
2: Kid, that was a joke.
0: My first one. I'm on the road to making three bucks a week. So here's a show about Mad Magazine. And now the only nude model Don Martin ever used. Colin McEnroe.
3: That's right, and there's actually a, a part of my body that makes the sound "plate." Uh, at some point today, we really do have to talk about the sound effects in Mad Magazine, um, and it's really the only Mad Magazine about which you would talk about the sound effects. But uh, that's one of the many ways in which it is completely unusual. So I'm holding what I believe to be the latest issue of Mad Magazine, uh, and there's a picture of Donald Trump and Alfred E. Newman. They both have the Donald Trump hairstyle, and I was kind of thinking, you know, I mean, really, if Donald Trump represents the end of history, which I think he may. This, this could per- be like the, just the, it's the perfect reason to do a show about Mad Magazine. And, and perhaps it'll be the last mag- Mad Magazine ever because history will end. Uh, and, and on a perfect note, Alfred E. Newman and Donald Trump side by side. Alright, so so many things to talk about here, but first of all, let me tell you who we're going to talk uh, Two about these things. Uh, John Ficar is in a studio in New York, NPR Studios in New York. He's been executive editor of Mad Magazine since 1985, so that means uh, he turns 30 as an editor this year. Uh, joining us by phone, Bill Oakley, a television writer and producer. His credits include Futurama, The Cleveland Show, Portlandia, and The Simpsons, where he worked for seven seasons and won three Emmys. Uh, A little bit later, uh, we're going to talk to Bill Shelley. He's the author of Harvey Kurtzman, the man who created mad and revolutionized humor in America. Um, So all of that, plus your phone calls as we go along. Uh, But first of all, I think I am going to begin... Uh, Yes, Matt is a cultural institution, but it's also a cultural institution that people kind of meet individually. I mean, it's not like a movie that everybody goes to or a play that everybody goes to or a record that everybody buys. It's something that you kind of encounter if you're going to on your own terms, in your own space, under unusual circumstances. And certainly for me, it really did feel like this Promethean secret, like I was stealing fire. You know, it was sort of the early to mid 60s. Um, It was kind of there was still this kind of Eisenhower cheerfulness, suffusing everything. People were not asking a lot of hard questions or critical questions. Cynicism was not in fashion. And suddenly uh, I found this magazine which suggested that the things in advertising were not true. And that many of the things that I had been told were good were not. Uh, and I felt just like this portal opening, taking me to a world that I had never inhabited before. So I'm guessing this might have happened with both of the guests that we're going to start out with. Uh, John Fakara, maybe uh, you could just talk about yourself as the young reader of MAD as opposed to its executive editor. What what was your uh, epiphanic encounter with it?
1: Well, you could just replay the tape of what you just said <laughs> because I think that's pretty universal and that- like oh, my God, this magazine exists, and it's talking to me. Um, and we get that so often. And the other thing we get very often is, and I remember, and then the person proceeds to tell me their favorite article of all time, and they can usually recite it verbatim, and it's rarely the same article. I mean, sometimes it's a song parody, sometimes it's a Don Martin gig, sometimes it's a Dave yeah. Berg side of, but something touched them and got into their system. I guess it's like the chickenpox virus. Once you got it, you can't get rid of it. And they just remember it and remember mad very fondly as a real touchstone.
3: I think that's an interesting point, and I'll just press you on it a little bit, that, you know, that everybody's favorite mad thing, it just isn't the same thing. I mean, I put something up on Facebook today, and right away somebody said, well, you have to talk about 43-man Squamish or Squamish. Uh, scram- yeah. Like, I, I don't... I sort of remember that, but, I mean, it wouldn't be the first thing that jumped into my head. But so you, it's funny.
1: That is the most reproduced man article it? ever. Really? Because so many people like it and keep writing in saying, can you reproduce it? Yeah.
3: So we should say what that was. So it was, it was a game that somebody and Matt invented. Uh,
1: the writer was Tom Cook. The artist was George Woodbridge. I like to give them props. And it was just this ludicrous game that you played. And it was, it was total nonsense. But it, again, touched the nerve. And suddenly we're getting photos of... Colleges where the, on campus they were forming teams and trying to play this stupid game, and they had helmets and 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 nets at the ends of uh, uh, sticks and everything. We were as stunned as anybody. This predates me. This is all folklore and mad now. Uh, but forty-three men, Squamish. To this day, people say I still get letters. Oh, gee, I remember this game that was. Was it 43-something? I don't know. Could you just reprint it or send me a copy of it? It's just one of those things.
3: <laughs> and and actually, there's a there's a line buried somewhere in the piece that turned into the title of a bootleg Pink Floyd album. It's something like, my uncle is sick, but the road is green or something like that. It's like these weird little <laughs> tropes that. that sort of survive <laughs> in various ways. So, Bill Oakley, I want you to join this conversation. Uh, and uh, I know that you weren't raised on the teeming streets of Brooklyn uh, and uh, the way that you encountered Mad is kind of interesting and familial and attic-y. So tell us that story. Yeah, I was
4: raised, um, I grew up in the country out in r- uh, rural, I don't know, Maryland, northern Maryland. And uh, my brother had gone off to college, uh, he was much older than me, and left the attic full of well, pretty much every Mad magazine from 1960 to 1970. And i that's where I discovered Mad. Uh, that's where I learned how to read, as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> I was always venturing up there looking for old toys or whatnot, and I happened upon all these old Mads, which – and I had the same – I don't need to repeat the revelation story, which you, guys just, <laughs> which you guys just told, but it was exactly the same thing, except I was kind of going back to a time before I was born and getting acquainted with the Eisenhower administration and um, JFK and Khrushchev and that kind of thing. Um, so then I finally caught up uh, and started buying my own Mads um, in like 1972, but it was a similar
3: story. So if you learned to read by reading MAD, were you under the impression that potter zibi, or however you pronounce that, was a real word? Uh, yeah,
5: briefly, I think, yes. And <laughs> <laughs> for slugger and all the other words.
3: Because <laughs> that's one of the great things about uh, MAD. We're all laughing because MAD introduced a language. It was often this kind of fusion. It was sort of fake Yiddishisms, and, and, but it was actually its own very specific language. Which, well, potter is a Polish word. It is, okay.
1: Yeah, but I'm not sure what it means. <laughs> and you're the executive editor of Matt,
3: and you don't know what it <laughs> well, means.
1: Well, we've gotten so many translations on it from different people. Oh, no, it means this, it means that, so we've decided it really means nothing. But, uh, but it is Polish.
3: One of the great things about Mad, and the, one of the things that, of course, reinforced everybody's bond with it was that your teacher hated it. If your teacher knew that you had it, she would take it away. If it was in your desk in fifth grade, it would be confiscated from you. That Your teacher had never read it, but your teacher somehow or other knew that it was A, subversive, and B, as she would say, trash. Um, And, I I mean, well, go ahead, John. I can hear you getting ready to react.
1: uh, Yeah, one of the things that we really pride ourselves in, one of the gestalt of med, is that we want you to question authority, Mm -hmm. to think for yourselves. And that is the worst thing you want to tell a student, especially in grammar school, and a teacher wants to get that thought out of their heads right away because they don't want anarchy in the classroom. So we have always been hated by teachers,
3: but I think also, and, and Bill, uh, I think this is particularly where some of the stuff that you've worked on comes in. You can't really enjoy a lot of mad if you are not somewhat invested in Western civilization. I mean, and it's destruction, obviously. But, you know, I mean, I remember reading a JFK parody that was based on HMS Pinafore. I remember uh, this goes back. You'd have to go into the paperback books, which, Bill, I know you have. Um, Sometimes mad would just print a poem, a classic poem verbatim, and illustrate it in a really funny way. So you'd read Rime of the Ancient Mariner or Casey at the Bat or something, and there'd be all these uh, terrific uh, illustrations of them. And and there was this kind of sense that although your teacher thought it was trash, in fact, in order to get the jokes, you actually had to know something, which I think, you know, I, I realize the Simpsons writers room occasionally looks like some kind of Harvard annex. You know, th- it's sort of the same thing, right? There are all these jokes that y- you can't be stupid and understand this. Uh,
4: you know, it's a cliche, but the phrase broaden your horizons comes to mind. Um, there's mad Draw, uh, drew, and draws from such a you know from such a huge variety of uh, American experience that it, you know you're like I really I know a lot about Estes Kefalver from reading, from reading <laughs> Mad you know and 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 things like that which I never would have had any acquaintance with otherwise um, and it's true it definitely it, you know to repeat the cliche it broadens your horizons it, it 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 draws from such a, a, a wide rainbow of American culture that, like, you know, you can't help but learn stuff.
3: You know, and I think here's the, the, one of the other revelations that might have touched some of us more than others, like maybe the three of us more than others. Another revelation that sunk in at some point was that there were people being paid to write this stuff, you know, that that, that, that this was a job that somebody had, that you could actually write stuff that was funny, you know, and sort of not funny like the way The New Yorker was funny, but funny in a way that, you know, people you know knew even as a young guy, would laugh at. So, um, so John, I know that at a certain point you started to get some of those really sort of um, just unforgettable Mad Magazine mass-produced rejection notices. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah,
1: I started sending to Mad. I think when I was in second or third grade, and I, <laughs> I was an early, I was an early underachiever, and they, of course, I immediately got back the rejection slips. And Mad has a rejection slip where it's a f- couple of funny paragraphs, and it ends up with, "Well, you've been rejected." for one of the following reasons, and then there's a checklist where, you know, we've done it, we don't want to do it, whatever it says. So I had a, a very large collection of these. And I went all through grammar school and high school, trying to send in stuff, rejects, rejects. And then I guess I was just starting college, and I got back in the mail, because this was well before email. I got back in the mail from Nick Meglin, who was then an a, a associate editor, this isn't right, but keep trying, you're getting close, which was the ultimate thing that you could get as a freelance writer, especially somebody who never really published anywhere. And that was all the impetus I needed to just keep trying and trying. And eventually I got back at, we like the idea, but not your lines. Will you sell us just the idea? And I wrote back, well, yes, I will, but let me try writing lines first. And I wrote, I guess about 150 one-liners for the article. And I had no idea what they were looking for. So I was just selling anything out that ha- that came into my head. And, Eventually, I got 24 that worked, and that was my first sale. And uh, other sales begat that.
3: So, um,. Uh, and, and Bill Oakley, um, to what degree did all of this begin to make you think about? I don't know if you ever got mad rejection letters, but at some point you decided. Have, Wait I a I minute, I have a few of my own. Yeah, you do? yeah. <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there's another one I think where uh, Al, that Al Feldstein uh, sent out, where uh, he talked about how the, their therapist had told them not to do certain things, and and at the end uh, he said, uh, he, you know, that uh, it could have been worse. Your material might have been accepted, uh, and then where would you be? um so so bill at one point did you or to what degree did the existence of mad put you on some kind of road that you're still on you know I, to be
4: honest i i started out as a cartoonist and i re- i don't think i was ever in this ca- i realized i was not in the caliber uh of the cartoonists in mad and i wasn't i didn't even try to submit cartoons i started submitting articles a little later um and i, I I don't know, you know, it didn't even occur to me that it was possible to make money doing that um, until much later. Uh, So I felt that it was too amazing uh, until I I was, like, in college. It didn't even occur to me that it was possible, you know, to make money doing that because it was such a pantheon of, like, you know, uh, of all those guys. I didn't think you, you could break in there.
1: Well, it was a very close shop. You're absolutely right. I mean, I was the first person they hired in 24 years. That's why you saw the same names over and over again, and Gaines liked it. Bill Gaines, the publisher, liked it as a small mom-and-pop operation, and you really had to do something amazing, especially on the art end more than the writing end, because they felt, well, we got Drucker, who does the movie satires, and you got Davis, who does the sports, and you you got Berg, who does Americana, so what are you bringing to the table that we don't already have with the greatest guys who do that sort of thing? So it was very, very tough to break in.
3: So and Bill, I, I would assume also that one of the other influences of MAD, so one of the things if you like MAD, I mean there's all kinds of things within MAD that you can you can like and I, I'm a big fan of some of the earlier work that had these sort of highly overpopulated panels where, as you looked at the panel, I mean, there was something that was, you know, at least nominally four square and center, but there was all this stuff going on on the margins and things posted on the walls and things written on people's chests and people in the background doing. We gardening. call that chicken fat. Chicken fat. I yeah. love chicken That's
1: fat. the office term for that chicken yeah. fat.
3: So chicken fat is great, and 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 it sort of was. Roy Blunt calls this being funnier than necessary. This kind of notion that it really isn't just enough. <laughs> to just deliver one big joke, that somehow or other you almost have to distract people from whatever the one big joke is. And I see that, Bill, in the in a lot of the stuff that you've been involved with. Is that, does that resonate at all?
4: Absolutely. You know, I don't think I ever drew that parallel until right now, but it's totally true. Um, you know, I, I consider starchy to be my favorite mad thing yeah. of all time probably. And, you know, it's just packed from wall to wall <laughs> with the, the chicken fat. And um, I think that, yeah, we i've worked with feel like we're not really fully delivering if we don't cram something into every panel even if you have to freeze frame to see it um and i and i think that's probably where that same ethos came on the simpsons even when you know before dvrs but people had to use you know video recorders to pause and freeze frame and to read those signs um i think that's probably why we did it to stand the bar had been set for that kind of thing
3: you know there's a there's a simpsons episode i can't put any kind of frame around it other than i believe they're at a, a duff beer factory and these bottles are going by bottles are going by really fast on this conveyor belt one of them goes by and it has hitler's head inside yeah, it. yeah yeah that's a perfect example yeah, of that kind of <laughs> <laughs> and and i just that's a mad mag that's chicken fat to me that's a mad magazine thing you know see so something would would flash it would do the equivalent uh in a panel of flashing by you and you go wait a minute
1: what was that <laughs> oh yeah there's never no go wrong with hitler I mean, in the comedy world yeah.
4: i'm Fairly certain that every single person on The Simpsons, at least in the old days and probably still, um, was a devoted reader of Mad Magazine, and I think there's a huge amount of of ripping off Mad Magazine's um, tropes in the series. Um, you know, because they're because they're, they're great.
3: Yes, there's. I, I have stuff that's still embedded in my mind. I couldn't even tell you the exact Mad Magazine source, but there's a phrase: a left-handed one with a belt in the back. And I, I have no. I, I was applied to something that couldn't either be left-handed or have a belt in the back. And, and just I, I. To this day, I, there's moments at which I will sort of plagiarize that somehow. It's just sort of stuff that sticks in your head. Hey, we've got to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with more of Mad Magazine. Uh, thanks so much to Bill Oakley, television writer and producer for Futurama, The Cleveland Show, Portlandia, and The Simpsons. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of MAD and how it came to be and how, and who made it what, it what it is and what it was. Uh, John Ficarra is with us. He's been executive editor of MAD Magazine since 1985. He joins us from the NPR studios in New York and now joining us. Thanks again to Bill Oakley. It was great to have him on. Uh, Bill Shelley's joining us now. Uh, he's the author of Harvey Kurtzman, The Man Who Created MAD and Revelized Humor in America. Before we go to Bill, um, so John Ficarra, you know, over the years, and particularly when I was— Um, younger and reading M.A.D., Uh, occasionally there would be obviously usurpers and pretenders to the throne, and they had names like Cracked and Sick and stuff like that. And I never liked them as much as I liked M.A.D., and some of that may be that I imprinted like a baby duck. But I think another part of this, I was thinking about this today, was that there was, after a while, a sense of what in the movies we call auteurism about M.A.D., that after a while you really did start to know You know, who Sergio Aragonis was or who Dave Berg was or who Al Jaffe was or going back to Harvey Kurtzman, Bill Elder, people like this. If you were the kind of person who read the magazine kind of carefully, it really was the product, as you say, of this somewhat closed team of people who, you know, had this kind of unvarying standard that they hit.
1: You're absolutely right. In fact, I went even one further. I would know who Gloria Orlando was, <laughs> who was Bill's secretary, and listed on the masthead, and Jack Albert, right. Bill's attorney, who we put Jack Albert lawsuits. <laughs> For some reason, I would pore over the masthead every issue, in addition to reading every word many, many times. There is some relationship that develops between man and its readers that's hard to define, but boy, it's, it's very, very deep.
3: So um, let's talk to Bill Shelley a little bit about this. Uh, One of the key names, you heard uh, the name Bill Gaines or Mr. Gaines at the beginning of the show. That's one of the key names. But uh, Harvey Kurtzman is maybe the other key name. So uh, in a quick nutshell, Bill Shelley, who was Harvey Kurtzman? Well, Harvey Kurtzman
6: was a... uh Brilliant cartoonist and an innovator, and a, a very talented writer who created MAD back in 1952. And he was the son of uh, uh, Jewish immigrants from the Ukraine who was born in Brooklyn, grew up, and uh, met a lot of the people he'd work with later in MAD when he was at the High School of Music and Art um, uh, in uh, New York City with a bunch of talented people. And uh, that's how the kind of the MAD
3: click got started. And and what what did they think? What did Harvey Kurtzman think he was doing when he started this out? I mean, what what was the purpose of trying to do this? If if he had to explain the mission of Mad.
6: Well, the initially the impetus for Mad was that Harvey was working on uh, doing war comic books, and he was completely worn out by all the research. And so the idea was, let's do. A, I want to do a comic book that's easy, and and. The thing that he did from his youth was satirical cartoons of his friends, of his teachers, and things like that. So he naturally decided, well, I'll do an easy comic book about satire and make fun of, uh, of things. And that's, there's no research in doing that. There's just the stuff that me and my, friend, my buddies uh, joke about. And so that's how he started doing Mad was just as an easy comic book. And it gradually developed into something a lot more than that. But it started with a very simple idea.
3: Um, And, and, I mean, there's this—first of all, we should say this biography—we should say something about the biography. This is um, a a large biography. It is a comprehensive biography. Uh, It is a biography that was not approached uh, casually uh, by you. I mean, uh, this is something you worked on for, what, about four years? Uh,
6: That's right. I mean, I took a break for a few months in the middle to do something else. But, yeah, about four years ago— my publisher asked me if I'd be interested in doing a, a biography of Harvey because he knew I was such a big fan of Kurtzman's work and of course I jumped at the chance and uh spent it ended up being a much bigger job than I ever thought it would be because you know K- Harvey Kurtzman is considered one of the gods of comic books and he's a genius and a brilliant creator and somebody who's influenced so many people it's just hard to even you can't even exaggerate his influence
3: and so John Ficara, I mean, first of all, I feel as though Mad, uh, you as executive editor of Mad and Mad Magazine in general seems keenly aware of its history, maybe a little bit more aware of its history than a lot of publications of a comparable age. Um, so, I mean, I, I assume, first of all, that as that kid who discovered Mad, you were, uh, although there were two iterations of Kurtzman, and, and maybe we can get to that, but at some point you became aware of Harvey Kurtzman.
1: Yes, but the mad that I knew was really the po- then and first started reading was really the post Harvey mad, mm-hmm. because the first twenty three mads were comic book in size and it spoofed other comics, mm-hmm. and then with issue twenty four, uh, the magazine became what Bill Gaines called a slick, which was a black and white but regular magazine size uh, product, and Harvey's vision for it and Bill can speak to it better than I can, but I think he really wanted to do almost like a funny version of Life magazine. <laughs> and if you look at issues 25, 26, 27, when Harvey was doing the issues, it sort of looked like that. And then Harvey and Mad parted and I think, issue 28 over Harvey wanted 51% of the magazine and Bill would not give it to him. So they basically parted ways and Felstein came in as the editor, Al Felstein, and he really took the magazine in a much different direction than Harvey did. But for everyone's uh, benefit... That became the magazine that I think most people identify as mad. It was under Felstein that Don Martin came in and we started the movie parodies and Dave Berg and The Folding and Al Jaffe and the Snappy, snappy Answers to Stupid Questions. All of that came post-Harvey in the Felstein years.
3: You know, I mean, w- a whole bunch of names that we just said uh, brings me, uh, Bill Shelley, to one of my other points, which is that, you know, the, your Kurtzman biography reminded me that MAD, even maybe more than early radio and sitcoms, was this kind of huge sledge piled with Jewish humor, dragged into our midst by draft animals who were underpaid writers and artists yeah. from Brooklyn. You know, that—, that, um, that, that They're still that, underpaid, by yeah, the way. Good. Good, <laughs> that's good to know. But so the twin towers of American humor, I think, are Jewish and black, right? The, these are the, the rhythms, the beats— Um, The motifs of American humor are those two uh, strains, both from oppressed people, uh, and 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 it's one of the things you explore a little bit in the book. Is is I mean, this was for you know a gentile living in West Hartford, Connecticut. That's me. uh, This was an introduction to a style of humor that wouldn't have reached me any other way. I don't maybe Bill, you could say more about that.
6: Well, yes. I mean, I think the the Jewish humor uh, in Mad. and uh that sort of thing is something that made mad sort of an exotic sort of publication imagine you're living in uh you know Iowa or something and you're getting this magazine with with various uh terms and they invented their own uh, language too uh with verschlugener and words like that potterzebi um, it all gave Mad uh, a very unusual quality, and I think uh, people uh, found it even more fascinating as a result of that. Instead of being repelled by anything like that, people were drawn in by it.
3: Uh, we're coming up on a break here but very quickly one of the things that was clear Bill also was that if, if it was funny enough nobody could do anything about it that you could speak truth to power if you were making everybody laugh so even J. Edgar Hoover although he was briefly tempted to do something about mad didn't dare do it and a show business titan like Ed Sullivan's reaction to being skewered in mad was what to ask for the original artwork right?
6: Right exactly I mean people loved it and people uh, always wanted to have their TV shows and their movies satirized in mad and and. Of course, course, the movie satires actually did start with the Kurtzman mad. There were many movie satires in there. Um, So yeah, all those people wanted to be in the pages of mad. It was just like uh, being made fun of on Saturday Night Live.
3: All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to be talking more about Mad Magazine. Uh, John Ficarra is going to tell us uh, a lot more about uh, the present uh, of, and future of Mad Magazine. Uh, and Bill Shelley is the author of Harvey Kurtzman, the man who created mad and revol- revolutionized humor in America. So we'll take a break. And by the way, we will take your phone calls uh, after this break. So tweet us your pithy remarks at uh, WNPR
0: The show was produced by the usual gang of idiots, Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared on maps of hills named Greg and in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Dan Schultz and Sarah Flaherty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Alfred E. Newman. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Here and Now staff acting out spy versus spy cartoons, visit our website, WNPR.org. Colin. And now, back to Colin.
3: I'm sure somebody at Mad Magazine is working on Marco Rubio's Water Habit uh, parody, also, as well, right now. But, uh, uh, the magazine uh, keeps up very well with things. John Vicara is with us. He's the executive editor of MAD since 1985. We've got a lot of uh, people calling in. I want to get to them, Jennifer in particular, because I want to talk about the relationship between uh, women uh, and MAD. But before we g- uh, get to Jennifer, uh, just one thing I do want to ask about, John. So, you know, I mean, it doesn't take uh, very long to find people who are influenced by this. I mean, you heard Bill uh, Oakley say that probably everybody who ever wrote for The Simpsons was a MAD magazine writer. Our producer, Jonathan Mickle McNichol founder Roger Ebert saying, I learned to be a movie critic by reading Mad Magazine. Mad's parodies made me aware of the machine inside the skin. Uh, Stephen Colbert talking about David Letterman said his disregard for status and respectability. That's it. It reminded me of Mad Magazine that way. To say nothing of the fact that David Letterman slightly resembled uh, Alfred E. Newman. Um, And (laughs) I can't find any proof, but I just I would stake my life. Uh, on the idea that Tom and Ray Maliazzi, the Car Talk guys, uh, were just uh, weaned uh, on Mad Magazine. I mean, it just has to be the case. Everything about their style of humor suggests a deep familiarity with those comic tropes. Do you have one or two
1: other favorite examples of people
3: who just sort of surprise you by having turned out to have grown up reading Mad Magazine?
1: Two years ago, we did a book called Inside Mad, and I was looking for someone to write a celebrity intro for it. And I reached out to Judd Apatow. And he immediately jumped on it. Mm -hmm. And right after that, I started getting letters and inquiries from other people saying, I'd like to write something. I'd like to write something. And we got this tremendous caliber of people from all walks of life, everyone from the Ken Burns, (laughs) uh, the documentary filmmaker who grew Mm -hmm. up reading Mad and Loved It, obviously Weird Al Yankovic, who I think is just the embodiment of music. Um, Roseanne Barr wrote a terrific article about how she was the only Jews living in Salt Lake City, and her and her father would go down. To the drugstore and read the issue on the stand, and after a while, the drugstore owner got mad at them and said, "You know, this isn't a library." And her father got very upset about this and stormed out of the store, but not before taking one of the the subscription cards. And she said that was the only card that the only magazine that he ever subscribed to was Mad. And what got him most was seeing all the Jewish names uh, on the masthead and in the and, and in the credits of the magazine really sticking it to powers that be. He just thought that was the greatest thing as a Jew living in Salt Lake City. And then I got almost the identical uh, thing from another comedian who said that he was, uh, George Lopez, who was growing up and saw the name Sergio Aragonis and Antonio Prohias and a couple of other Hispanics name in the magazine and what that meant to him growing up that Hispanics could thrive in the comedy business. So we're never quite sure who we're touching But it's an amazing amount of people all over the planet.
3: So the Roseanne Barr story gets us right to Jennifer calling from East Granby. Hi, Jennifer. You're on the air.
2: Oh, hi. How are you? Good. Good. So what is
6: it? When I was growing up, I was the only girl I knew who read Mad Magazine, and I, I could never understand why everybody wasn't reading Mad Magazine.
3: Well, I can tell you that my uh, ex-wife was a, a Mad Magazine reader and really maybe the person responsible for my whole Promethean stealing, stealing fire theory uh, of Mad Magazine. So, John, what can you tell us about that? I mean, there haven't been very many creators uh, at Mad who uh, were women. What can you tell us about the relationship between uh, Mad and, and women?
1: There's no question that early on it was an entirely male produced magazine. And one of the things that Nick Meglin and I tried to do is really change that and bring on more women contributors and hopefully more more women readers. It's funny. When we did a, a demographic survey, men is something like 82%, 83% male read. We do have some read, female readers, but not that many. But the female readers are the more vocal ones. They're the ones who keep writing letters to us and things like that. So I don't know if there they were more female closet readers who won't admit it or... Maybe maybe our just our figures are just wrong. Certainly we don't set out to just write for men. I mean that is not our we, we try to write what we just think is funny. And there's no question that mad's humor is a little bit more aggressive than the typical female humor. But I'm happy to report that we do have some female contributors now. Uh Teresa uh Parkhurst Burns is a regular contributor. And in the current issue, uh there's a there's a terrific sculpture by a by a gal that uh, that we've used a couple of times now. Um, and her name is i want to make sure i co- uh, sarah Shalick did the illustrations and kira Shar- sharanova did the the sculpture of a kim davis doll like an american Dave, uh, like an american girl doll so we are actively trying to bring more women into the fold and hopefully more female writers as well
3: so jennifer you know i know you a little bit and i know a little bit about what you've done with your life i mean do you think mad influenced did shape your brain in some way
6: Absolutely, it did. Um, I, I think I was drawn, well, I was drawn to the humor and I loved the illustrations and I would spend hours just poring over them trying to find all the little details, but I think it was mostly the sophisticated language that I liked, um, and I felt really smart when I read Mad Magazine and understood the words, and sometimes I had to look them up, but then I got even smarter. And I think all that reading and uh, kind of absorbing Mad Magazine kind of influenced the voice in my head so that now I, I would never presume to say I write like the writers of Mad Magazine, but I kind of hear that sort of voice in my head when I write, which is what I do for a living now.
3: All right. Well, listen, thanks for that uh, input. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for calling. We're talking to John Fakara, executive editor uh, from MAD. We've got a couple of more calls here that I want to get to, but I also want to make sure we have a little bit more time to talk about uh, some of these personalities in... um uh, in in the history of MAD, and also the, the kind of attitude of MAD. So um, Bill Gaines, along with Harvey Kurtzman, were t- t- kind of the two progenitors uh, of MAD. Um, Gaines, Bill Gaines' stories are, are kind of all over the place. Uh, John, I'm assuming you have one or two favorites of your own.
1: Oh, he was great. Yeah, uh, Bill never wrote or even edited a single word of the magazine, but Bill created the atmosphere that let everyone else flourish. And it was a real genius of how he did it. I think the, the thing he did most was every year he would gather up the, the, the immediate editing staff and all the freelance writers and artists and take them on a trip somewhere in the world.
3: Didn't and he take them chap- to Haiti to meet the one Haitian reader of MAD? Do I have that right?
1: Yes. Yes. I, I, that was maybe the first MAD trip ever. And they were off to Haiti. Bill loved Haiti. And uh, he looked up the subscription rolls and he had one subscriber in Haiti. So, when they got there, they, I think they took four Jeeps and herded all the mad uh, contributors, drove up to this poor kid's house, rang the doorbell, and when he answered, they were, everybody was on their <laughs> knees saying, Please resubscribe, please resubscribe, <laughs> which he did. Yeah. And then a year later, a second person in Haiti subscribed. So, Bill always pointed to that as proof that the trips really worked because we doubled our. Sales in Haiti as a result of that, as a result of that trip. A nice postscript to that story is, right towards the end of Bill's life, he was on the old Bill Costas later show, mm-hmm. uh, Tom, uh, uh, Bob Costas, I'm sorry, yeah. Bob Costas later show, and he told that story, and the kid that they met in Haiti was now an attorney in San Francisco, and saw the show, and he and Bill were able to get together and have dinner, mm-hmm. uh, so it was a nice completion of the circle.
3: You know one of the ways in which I feel as though mad magazine 's legacy goes a lot of different places, uh, including um, to the to the simpsons and, and and to any other kind of transgressive comedy and obviously the work of stand up comedians now who take no prisoners um, is that notion of uh, nothing being sacred, and uh, if you see a tripwire, run toward it as opposed to away from it. And I assume that's still the ethos uh, of MAD, that th- no matter what it is, there's going to be something funny about it.
1: Yes, within reason. Yeah. The one thing that we, MAD never does or ever did was m- do victim humor. Mm-hmm. So when we never made a joke about a patient with AIDS. right? However, Reagan wouldn't say the word AIDS, and we were all over him for that. So we, we sort of draw that line there, and we, we'll also, um, like I said, just never do the, any kind of victim humor. When Amanda Bynes started acting crazy, we were doing stuff on the blog about her. But once it became obvious that this was just not a spoiled celebrity out drinking every night, and making a fool of herself, that she actually had mel- mental conditions, we shut it down. You don't see any jokes about her in, ever, uh, you know, after that. It, there were some. There were bigger fish to fry than us to make uh, fun of victims.
3: Um, there's a story that I've read about you being stuck in the mad offices uh, on 9-11, sleeping in the office. Did you get stuck there on
1: 9-11? I did. It wasn't my <laughs> finest hour, but, you know, uh, I couldn't, I, I live on Staten Island, Yeah. and there were reports the ferry wasn't running, and we're up in Midtown, so I said, you're going to walk to the ferry, and then there may be no ferry, and I'm going to get stuck down there. So I said, I'm, I got a sofa in my, ca- my office, I might as well just spend the night. So I'm sitting there, and not much happened, I said, gee, you know what, the producer was as were really hot then on Broadway. I said, maybe I can go down and get a ticket, because I couldn't get a ticket. So I went down, of course, stupid me, right. expecting Broadway to be open on the night of 9-11. Mm. Uh, and they were. It's, a th- we, you know, it's even stupider thinking that I could laugh on that night. It wasn't my finest hour.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's great that you can tell that story, too. Uh, let me grab a, a call here from George in Glastonbury. Hi, George. You're on the air.
5: Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, there are a couple of things about mag- magazine that, uh, that I always admired. I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, and I wasn't an avid reader, but there's, there, there are certain things you couldn't escape, and the, the major thrust of the magazine for me was that you, they could go from very, very uh, low humor to very, very high humor in 60 seconds, and uh, uh, the example of low humor, I don't know if this will connect with anybody, because I think it was part of the chicken fat was uh, the phrase "Come in, Rangoon"? And <laughs> this, this, somebody, somebody recognizes it, I think. <laughs> yes. And uh, of high humor was the the composer's edition of Mad Magazine, and uh, they talked about um, uh, Mozart being so uh, prolific that later in life he was walking the streets of Salzburg whistling "Bess, you is my woman now." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that always tickles me. And uh, speaking of celebrities, I can't believe that Itzhak Perlman didn't uh, approach you about writing something for the magazine because uh, in person he's – even if he isn't funny, he thinks he's very funny. And I, I think he, that kind of humor would be uh, a very appealing to him.
3: Well, you know, a lot of people did have approached Mad and Mag- I mean, er- Ernie Kovacs uh, wrote for some of the early issues. I mean, people did, people who had established themselves in other fields, John Ficarra, did want to write for the magazine.
1: Although the early days was when Felstein took over and he had no writing staff. Right. So what he was doing, he was approaching Ernie Kovacs and saying, would you mind if I adopted some of your material? Same things with Bob and Ray. The interesting thing that happened with Bob and Ray was... All the material Felstein was adopting, he noticed, was written by one guy, a guy named Tom Cook, K-O-C-H. And finally, he said to Bob and Ray, would you mind if I just went to Tom and asked him if he wanted to contribute directly to the magazine? And they said, no, that's fine. And Tom became one of our greatest legendary writers for years and years and years until he retired. He just recently passed away earlier this year. And he wrote 40 man, 43 Man Squamish, the piece we were talking about oh, earlier. Wow. Yeah, so he's just a tremendous writer. I can't give him enough credit.
3: You know, we're almost out of time here but i mean uh, to that point too i mean Gaines was really kind of fam- i mean mad magazine writers i was joking about uh you know draft animals uh, being underpaid writers from brooklyn but that was really kind of the truth to the point that in in bill shelley's book about harvey kurtzman there's a description of harvey kurtzman being so de- he actually was using some of his own pay to pay some of the writers because they're just Gaines just didn't have any money to pay anybody
1: yeah well the magazine has certainly changed since then i mean uh, uh, guys aren't the best paid, but. They can eke out a living, however, meager. Um, one another thing that about Mad that I don't think most people realize is that Mad, when we did our movie, uh, our song parodies, by the way, we were sued by Irving Berlin because we did a <laughs> takeoff on Blue blue, uh, blue Skies called Blue Cross, and Berlin, who was a notoriously litigious guy, sued us and went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it upheld the lower court's decision, the appeals court in New York, and. Judge uh, Julius Kaufman, I think his name was, wrote, Mr. Berlin, if I rule in your favor, every time somebody warbles a few bars of your song in the shower, they're going to have to send you some money. He says, you do not own iamic pentameter. And that really set the standard now for you know all the morning zoo shows that do song parodies and Weird Al and things like that it was all based on the Mad Magazine uh, lawsuit.
3: John Ficarra, we have to stop. I hate it that we have to stop. There's so much more to talk about, but thank you so much for joining us, John Ficarra, thank executive you. editor of Mad Magazine since 1985. He turns 30 as an executive editor uh, this year. He's been joining us from New York. Thanks to Bill Oakley and Bill Shelley. Also, special thanks to Jonathan McNichol for producing this show. We'll be back tomorrow
0: has got no don't What if we did some sort of audio fold in? Like they have at the back of mad magazines where it says something and then you fold it and it says something else. But then I would have to say it backwards. Ugh, forget it. See, this is why we need you to pledge to our station. We need more comedy writers on staff.